We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back, listeners, as we're going to continue our journey through Hebrews. And today we're going to be on chapter 8. Um, if you, there's going to be some things I'm going to talk about that are almost going to be kind of redundant of some things that I talked about even in chapter 7, uh, as well as I've talked about and covered through our Galatians through Colossians series. And so if you want to uh, know a little bit more in depth on some of those things, I would encourage you to go back and look at Galatians chapter 3, 4, and 5. Um, you can download those, or and also specifically even Ephesians chapter 2. The studies that I did of those, the podcasts that I did of those, I would encourage you to look at those in conjunction with this one, because I'm going to hit on some highlights of it, but I'm not going to go super, super in depth on it. Um, and so on the heels of chapter 7, which it was talking about Jesus establishing the spiritual order of things, that is a crucial thing to understand as we get into some of this stuff, because God didn't exchange the physical for the physical, okay? We just need to understand that. When he established a new covenant, it wasn't to establish a renewed covenant of the old. It was to establish a new covenant. That, that's literally what the word translates to. Um, it is a new covenant. Kindos is the Greek word. It means fresh or of, of, a, of a new kind. Um, it's something that is new. He didn't establish and replace a physical one with a physical one. And this is going to make sense as I get into it later on, specifically when we get to um, what is stated in 9 through 12. Um, God established and replaced the physical covenant that was made with his people with a spiritual covenant made with Christ. Now, this is an interesting statement because I didn't say with his people. I didn't say that he established a new covenant with his people. He established a new covenant with Christ. And as such, we come into that covenant in Christ. Which is why our salvation is not based on us. It is based on him and our position in him. That's why things like are stated in Romans 8, the very end of it. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not nothing can separate us from God. From the love of God. It's nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because this covenant that has been made is a covenant with Christ. Not us. And that is crucial to understanding. Our salvation is about our position in Him. Not our performance of Him. That must be understood. And as such, because it's in our position, that is why our charge is we must remain in Him. Until the end. That's, that's the whole crux of everything. 
is you must remain in him to the end. That's why Hebrews 6 is such a vital one for us to understand. That's why you're going to see things like in Matthew 10.22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 10.36, we'll cover that one in a little bit, uh, where he talks about you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. The will of God for you is essentially to remain in, in his son. That's the crux of it. Yes, there's other things, be holy as he is holy, uh, to, to live in such a way that reflects Christ, but the end all be all of everything when it's boiled down to its essence is you need to remain in Christ. Now I'm getting way off the topic of what chapter 8 is all about, so I'm going to get back to the text on what we're studying. Um, you want more on that? I say go listen to chapter 2 of Hebrews, go listen to chapter 3 of Hebrews, and specifically go listen to chapter 6 of Hebrews. And uh, that will give a little bit more in depth on those things. But point is, I want to establish an, an understanding, as I did in chapter 7, that God is not looking for a physical thing. He's now transferred in Christ everything from physical to spiritual. That's why we are a spiritual priesthood, a spiritual temple. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We're fed with spiritual milk and spiritual manna. We have a spiritual priesthood. We are part of a spiritual Jerusalem, um, as we're going to talk about a little bit later. God has transferred a physical pattern unto a spiritual pattern, a physical kingdom unto a spiritual kingdom. That's why the Jews are no longer his people. It really bothers me when people try to say that the Jews are are still God's people. He has forsaken them. That might be news to you. You might not understand that, but that's exactly what he says in Luke chapter 13, as well as what he talks about in Romans chapter 11, when he says that, and this is fresh on my mind because the sermon that was given on Sunday talked about this concept in which the the speaker was saying that the Jews are still God's people and us as the Gentiles were kind of like the, uh, as the church, I should say, we're like the ugly stepchild that we still serve a purpose and a role, but we're really not the um, the preferred one of God. And while those words weren't exactly stated, the concept that was given is that the Jews are the starting quarterback. They have all the talent and they just got uncoachable. So they got benched. And so we're filling in. Um, But the preference of the coach is for the starting quarterback to be the one who leads them to glory. And I don't see that in scripture. I see at the end of Luke 13, when Jesus says, behold, your house is forsaken, because until you say that I'm the Christ, you're going to be outside looking in. I see in Romans eleven twenty two when he talks about the, the Jews, the natural branches, they were cut off. The word is a copto, as a branch from a tree, that the nourishing um, trunk of that tree being Christ, that they were cut off from the commonwealth, from the promises, from the blessings. They were cut off. They weren't pruned. They were cut off, and they're a branch that's lying on the ground. And God says, and in his mercy, I will let you back in if you come in through Christ. But if you don't, you're going to be that branch that's on the ground that's going to get gathered and burned. The Jews are not God's people. They still serve a purpose for God's kingdom. They still serve a purpose in the end times. But they are not God's people. That is solely reference to the church. There's no way around that. If you're a believer that thinks, oh, I'm going to side with Israel and I'm going to be for the Jews. I'm sorry. That means nothing to God. That was a promise given under a physical covenant for a physical pattern. Not anymore. Because now it's been a spiritualized pattern in which that people that God's talking about, that he will bless those who bless and curse those who curse it, is the church. Those who are in Christ. Okay, now I've said my piece. I'm going to get into Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. He says, now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven... 
Excuse me, sorry, I had an alarm going off on my phone. See to the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, this kind of goes into what I'm talking about. This true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What's being referenced there is that David wanted to build um, Jesus a, um, he wanted to build him a tabernacle, okay? And God said, uh, okay, I'll let you build me a tabernacle. God never commanded for David to build it. David wanted to do it. But he said, but you're not going to because you shed blood. So it'll be your son. I'm going to pass down the pattern from you, David, to the son. From the father to the son in order to establish this tabernacle. But in Acts seven forty-eight, under this new covenant, it's declared that God does not dwell in tents made by human hands. But in human hearts, we have now become the temple, the spiritual temple of God. And we as living stones are being built up into this temple to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 2, 2 through 4. This true tent is this spiritual tent that God has set up in Christ. It's not one that man has set up. It's what God has ordained and what he has set up in this heavenly Jerusalem called the church. He says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. I want you to catch that. That was a copy and a shadow. As Colossians 2 puts it, it's a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. All it was doing was pointing to Christ. Everything that was ordained was pointing to Christ. It's a copy and a shadow. It ain't the substance. So if Jesus were a priest on earth, he wouldn't be offering those things because he's the substance. He's not a copy and a shadow. He is the substance. So he goes on, he says, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now this is also a crucial pr principle because it's the same concept in which a pattern was illustrated that needed to be mimicked by man. Moses was shown a pattern on that mountain, on that hilltop, in order to then declare it to man for us to follow. Right? In the same manner, this new pattern of Christ was shown to us on a hilltop for us as his children to then mimic and illustrate unto the world. The difference is, is what Moses gave to the people was not a conjunction with the cross that Christ illustrated to us. This is why he says, if you want to come after Christ in Luke 9.23, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and follow him. That word for follow is to ape or to imitate. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 talks about it where it says we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who set the bar of the faith at the highest example. And he says now you need to run after that and go try to achieve the same things. 1 John 2, 6. If anyone says he abides in him, he ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. 1 John 2, or I'm sorry, 1 John 3, 23 says, and this is his commandment. This is the commandment that God gives for us to follow in Christ. That they believe on the Son and that they love one another. That fulfills the new covenant. 
That's why John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By going to a cross for you. By showing what it looks like to fulfill the Father's will. He says, I'm not giving you a renewed commandment. I'm giving you a new one. One that's going to be in this new covenant that once I die, it will then be ratified. Once I come in, this new covenant, once I die and I go to that cross and I give you the pattern that's shown you on a mountain, then that new covenant will be established in my blood. And now this commandment will be ratified. And I'm going to give you the ability to do it. As opposed to Moses, who only gave them the command to do it without the ability. It was only hinging on man's ability to achieve God's commission. But praise God that in Christ we no longer have that as our covenant. We now have this new standard of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, the example of Christ. And he gives us the Holy Spirit and grace to be able to say, now you can go do it. So be careful that you formulate your life after the pattern, not that was shown you on Mount Sinai, because that one has been made obsolete. You don't believe me? Skip forward, spoiler alert, last verse of this entire chapter. That one's been made obsolete. The covenant we now have is the covenant that we have through Christ and the blood of Christ and the example of Christ, of what it looks like to love one another as he loved us. Never been illustrated to the people ever before. Going on, he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. See, essentially what Jesus is doing is he's pitting the physical covenant of the law of Moses to the spiritual covenant in the law of Christ. And he's pitting those two against each other. And he says, guess who's going to win? It's not the old, it's the new. It's not the old wineskins with the, with the old wine, it's the new wineskins with the new wine. It's not the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, as Second Corinthians 3 says, it's the ministry of the Spirit, written on human hearts. He said that, that that's not what it's about. It's no longer about those things. And they came with glory, don't get me wrong. They came with glory. But the glory that now surpasses it far exceeds it. And now it has come to have no glory at all. If you don't believe me, go read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 because that's exactly what he says. In fact, you know what? We've got the time. Let's just go read it real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says this, that we are made ministers, made sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant in verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, wonder what that is, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And in, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. That's what we were talking about all throughout Hebrews chapter 7. And he goes, over, he goes on, he says, but to, uh, in verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, talking about the Jews, the Israelites, who have the promises, the commonwealth, the, all those things, the glory of the old covenant, it says, For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Goes into chapter 7, what we were talking about. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And what's he talking about? Freedom from what? Freedom from the old covenant bondage. That's what Galatians 3 and 4 talk about. And even going into chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, um, For freedom Christ has set us free, therefore do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And do you know what he's talking about before? Mount Sinai. Go read chapter 4. Because it says that Hagar represents Mount Sinai. And she bears children for slavery. But the above Jerusalem is free. And she's our mother. Guys, I know that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking pretty in depth. And I'm throwing out a lot of, of meat to you right now. But let me just tell you. If you have eyes to see. Then you are indeed in Christ. And the Spirit of God is in you. And he will put these pieces together for you. But what I'm telling you is the truth. Whether or not you receive it, or whether or not you have the ability to receive it, or whether or not the pieces will be put together for you, that's up to you. Because as he says, if you seek me with all of your heart, you'll find me. Proverbs 8.17 says that I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. The question isn't if God's going to reveal it to you, it's whether or not you're going to seek after it. To know this to be the truth. Because I'm going to tell you, this is the truth. Because this is what the scriptures are teaching. So whether or not you, you see it, a lot of that depends on you. The promise has been made by God to reveal it to you. So whether or not you're going to seek it. So we have this new pattern, we have this new covenant, we have this new ministry. Uh, that's not as Mount Sinai, that's not in letters carved on stone. Right? And he goes on, he says, Christ has obtained a ministry. Back in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, the old covenant, the law of Moses, made with the people of God, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He says, if that old covenant, the law of Moses, could actually achieve in the people what I wanted it to, then I would never have been looking to establish a second one. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. If you had a perfect wife, right? Let's just bring it to modern times and something in a way that I'm not in any way condoning divorce and remarriage in any way because I don't believe that God condones it at all. I believe you are bound in covenant to that person until they die. 1 Corinthians seven thirty-eight or 39. But if you had a perfect wife and she was doing everything right, why would you ever look for a second one other than for selfish motive? You have a perfect wife. She's, she's doing what she needs to do. In the same way, if the old covenant had been faultless, 
if there was, if it was able to achieve in us, and maybe the, the analogy I gave is probably a faulty one. It's not a good one. It's just the first one that popped in my mind. But if that covenant was able to achieve in um, God's people what he wanted to achieve, he would never have looked for a second. So we see that the old covenant had fault to it. There was something that was there that could not achieve what God wanted to achieve in his people. And if you listen to chapter 7, you know exactly what that was. Because what did he say in this one? In verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Why look for a second if the first one was suitable? The reality is the first one was only a band-aid until Christ came. And it was only through Christ that God could establish through his people and in his people, what he really wanted to establish. And I'm going to even say it, the possibility unto perfection, to be like Christ, who was made perfect and became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He learned obedience through what he suffered. He became a pattern of how God's going to institute perfection in us. And that'll be through Christ. I'm so tired of hearing the excuses and so tired of hearing the futility of man. In which we like to almost kind of bask in it. It'll just be like, I'm just always going to be a sinner saved by grace. That's just who I'm going to be. That's not who you are. That's who you were. You were a sinner who was saved by grace. And God then said, I'm going to plant that grace in you through my Holy Spirit so that you no longer have to walk as a sinner. You can walk as my son. But we don't do that because we don't even think it's possible. The new covenant through the blood of Christ, the Spirit of God made to dwell in us and the grace that has been made available to us allows us to fortify our spirits in Christ to walk as he walked. That's why he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it says, I can take every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. That's why he talks about that I, as James 1, 2 through 4 says, that count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its work in you so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 3, it says his divine nature has granted to us all things which pertain to life and godliness. He says you have been given everything you need by his divine nature in you to live out a life of godliness. Stop wallowing in the concept and the heresies that man has given to us today that says that you are insufficient to be who God wants you to be. You have been given everything you need for a life of godliness because of Christ. This new covenant establishes in God's people the ability to live as God wants you to live. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. The reality is, is the old couldn't do it, the new can. And he says in, in verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second or a second pattern, if you will. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one 
his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He's very clearly establishing a new covenant. Not like the one of old, but a new one. Now this is where people get tripped up, because he says specifically with Israel and Judah... And he says specifically with those two. Now, you could go through and you could find that verse that says, those who are not my people are now my people. And you could find that he would be referencing the Gentiles here. What's interesting here is that God didn't make a covenant with Israel. He made a covenant with Christ. The the interesting thing is, is that God isn't refreshing or renewing this covenant and saying, now I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. Sorry, you Gentiles, you're not a part of this. I'm sorry, that's not what Scripture teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, as I've already read. That's not what Romans 11 even says, when it says that the Jews were cut off in order that the Gentiles could come in. The reality of this is not that God is refreshing a physical covenant by establishing a physical covenant. He is making a spiritual covenant. So therefore we have to identify who the spiritual Israel is. And what is he referencing about bringing two parties now into it? Because Judah was part of Israel. Who is he referencing as being Israel and Judah? Who is he bringing about and making this new covenant which he's going to write his laws on their hearts? Not on tablets of stone. You see, this is a spiritualized covenant that he says, what was written physically will now be spiritually instituted. In order to understand that, we have to flip forward, uh, go into Galatians chapter 4, 25 through 26, and Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24 and 28. And here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24 and 28. And then we'll go to Galatians 4, 25 through 26. He says this, For you have not come, To what may be touched. He says, in this new covenant, it's not about a physical mountaintop. Okay? You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message is spoken to them. This is Mount Sinai. He says, that's not what you've come to. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses says, I tremble with fear. He says, that's not what you've come to. When you've come into Christ, that's not what you're a part of. You're not part of the covenant that God made with Israel on that day. You're not part of the covenant that God made with the Jews on that day. Here's what you are part of. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. And to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says you want to know what you've come to? You've come to a spiritual priesthood. A spiritual temple You offer spiritual sacrifices as part of the spiritual heavenly Jerusalem. To the spiritual milk and the spiritual manna, to the spiritual rock that was Christ. He says, you have come to a kingdom that sits above. That's why he says in Hebrews 13, 14, we seek not the city that is here on this earth. We seek the city that's to come. Because one day that city will reign here on earth. 
That's the city that you're a part of. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. It's a spiritual kingdom. And as 28 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I guarantee you Israel can be shaken. But the church of God cannot be. It says, therefore, let us offer up to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We most certainly still need to fear him. But what Hebrews 12 is referencing is what we have come to. And it is not an old covenant that is in the blood of bulls and goats. It is not an old covenant that has the Levitical priesthood that serves at the altar. It's not an old covenant with an old law written on tablets of stone. It is a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of Christ, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in which he says you have been seated at the right hand of the Father, placed in him, at the right hand of God, in heavenly places. That is the covenant that God has made. It is not with Israel. It is not with the Jews. The new covenant that God has made is with Christ. And if you come into Christ, then you are part of that new covenant in a spiritual covenant. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 4, 25 through 26, in which he's given this allegory, in which he says, even in 21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, under that old covenant, under the things of Moses. He says, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. I'm just going to read the whole thing. He says, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the natural order, the physical order. You catching my drift on this? If you, if you went through and listened to chapter 7, you're going to get this because God has bypassed the physical in order to establish the spiritual. And in this case, the physical covenant of Moses made with the physical people of God in a physical land. He says, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women, remember, this is written, spirit-inspired canon by the hand of Paul. He says, now these women are two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Did you catch that? Isn't that interesting? It makes perfect sense though, when you understand that the offspring was not Isaac. The offspring was Christ. That's what he says in Galatians chapter 3. Read in the previous chapter. He says it's not referring to offsprings, but to offspring, which is Christ. You see, Hagar, which represents the covenant made at Mount Sinai, she was actually born outside of the promise. And you're like, wait, wait, hold up a second. God gave, yeah, God took care of Ishmael too, didn't he? God took care of Ishmael. God said Ishmael served a purpose. But Ishmael was not the one born of promise. That which was born through Hagar did not bear the righteousness of God the way it was supposed to. It wasn't born according to promise. That title is deserved of Sarah. Who Sarah birthed Isaac, the child of promise. And remember who Isaac identifies with, Christ. So he says, so you have come into Christ The law was not born according to promise. I really hope you're catching with me on this, that you're tracking with me. The law was born 
by man. You're like, well, God gave it to him. Yeah, you're right. But man was responsible for upholding it. The beauty of our covenant with Christ is that we come into him as the child of promise. And then God says, now I'm going to be the one who works in you to will and to work for my good pleasure. I'm going to give you my spirit and the ability to achieve what I want you to, to, to do. This, this might sound confusing for you, but I'm just going to, again, I'm going to say, get into the word and study it. Because it's not confusing for me. I might not be the greatest of articulating, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is, is far um, able to overcome my shortcomings on being able to explain what goes on in my head. If you would get in the word and study it, you'd find these to be true. He goes on, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem, the one who's still in slavery, the one who's still under the law of Moses. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual one, the one who God has made his covenant with, she's free and she is our mother. And he goes on, he says, But just as that time, in verse 29, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Essentially, he says, cast out that old covenant. It has been made obsolete. It is no longer sufficient. It is no longer what God is looking for. The band-aid has been removed and you have been healed in Christ. So brothers, we are not of the children of the slave, the physical, of the earthly Jerusalem, but of the free woman, the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritualized one. The one in which God looks at and he says, that's my beloved. Does God still love the Jews? Absolutely. That's why he says, if you'll come to me through Christ, you can come back in. I've made all things new. Christ is the nourishing um, root and he is the trunk. And if you want to be grafted back in, I can graft you back in. But only in him. The crazy thing is about this whole grafting process. <clears throat> I was explaining this to my daughter. As we were standing next to a tree. Is in order to graft a branch into something else. You have to make an incision. A cut. In the side of that trunk. And then you make a matching cut. In that branch. And you basically put it in there. With some pitch that you put around it. It's not pitch. It's, it's some salve that you put around it. That, that essentially allows it to heal. And then you wrap it. You surround it. So that it gives time and support for that branch. To actually take hold into the trunk. The beautiful thing is. Is that in John 19. It says that Jesus was pierced in his side. And out came blood and water. Forgiveness and healing. So therefore, any branch that wants to actually graft into the side of the trunk of Christ, he says then that he will actually fill you and wrap you with his spirit. He'll seal you with his Holy Spirit so that you can be grafted in. He says, look guys, if you're part of the earthly Jew and Israel and that's what you're siding with and that's what you're after, that you're after the wrong thing. Because in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one. So for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Of going back to an old covenant that as I'm about to show you in verse 13. God has made obsolete. 
He says, for in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. He's torn it up. It no longer has any validity for those who are in Christ. He says, and what is becoming obsolete, meaning that the law, as I talked about in chapter 7, is still in existence. Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it so that those who would come into Christ would find the end of the law on their behalf. Romans 10.3, Christ is the end of the law for those um, who believe. And so the reality is, is that the law is still in effect. It's not made fully obsolete just yet. It's only made obsolete for those who come into this new covenant through Christ. And it says, and it's growing old and ready to vanish away. It has an expiration date because one day God is going to judge the people. And he's going to essentially judge everybody according to what's written in the books and the standard. And he says, is your name in the book of life? Because if it's in the book of life, then you get in. It's not if it's in the, the book of Moses. It's if, is it in the book of life? Is your name in my son? Are you in my son? And so the question is, how do you get in this son? Romans chapter 10. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you will be saved. The premise is, is that Jesus came to be the savior of all people. He's established, he's opened it up, access to all people, Jew, Gentile, like all people in this world. He says, my desire is that I want all of you to be my children. I want every person who is created to be my child. But only those who submit their life to Christ as Lord, not savior, but Lord. That's how you get your name in the book of life. And then your job is to abide in that position. Until the end. By the grace that God will so amply afford to you. That's what he means when he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You better know who it is that lives in you. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't put Christ to the test. Know who it is. And you need to fear and tremble because of who you know is in you. And don't yoke yourself to sin in this life because of God is yoked to you. The reality is, you got to make sure that you're living this life the way that it needs to. But that word for work out is kazagazamei, and it means to achieve or to accomplish or bring to fruition. He says, you got to work out your salvation until the end. You have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you'll receive what is promised. And essentially, the will of God is that you, when it's all boiled down to its essence, is that you abide in His Son. Stay in Him. But understand, you are not under the old covenant to go back and observe its ordinances, as Ephesians 2 tells us. You are under the new covenant, the blood of Christ. And as 1 John three twenty three says, this is the commandment that God gives to you. This is what he wants for every single child of his. When it's all boiled down to its essence, he says this. I want you to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to love one another as I have loved you. That's what everything hinges on. Does love lie? No. Does love steal? No. So we know those, those concepts are still fortified in the new covenant. But the reality is, it all hinges on those two things. Love one another as Christ has loved you. By this the world will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, for one another. And love, I'll just say this and end with this. The love of God 
it always rejoices with truth. So it is impossible to say that I'm loving another person as God has loved me through Christ when I'm tolerating and condoning sin. The love of God will always rejoice with truth, never in falsehood or wrongdoing. So the reality is, guys, um, you can go look at our Ephesians 2 study. You can go look at my Galatians study in 3, 4, and 5. Uh, you're going to find some aspects of all this. You can even go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when I talked about this. The reality is, the old covenant that God made with his people and Moses has been made obsolete for those who come into Christ. You are now under a new covenant. And God has bypassed the physical in order to establish the spiritual. And that is the covenant we are a part of if we are in Christ. All right? Y'all be blessed.